0: Is there something you want to see God do in your life? It's six weeks. It's a nice little window of time. Sometimes for me, um, I think of people I know who are far from the Lord and think, oh, I'm just going to pray for them. Every time I don't drink a sweet tea, which it would be a lot, I drink it every lunch. And so I just think in my mind, it reminds me of this person because I'm ordering water instead of that. And I'm just going to say a prayer for them. If there's something that you want to see God do in your life in the life of somebody you love, Lent can be a great way of focusing your, um, focusing on that a little bit as well. So just a couple of things for you to think about um, leading up to Ash Wednesday. Last week, we looked at Cain and Abel. They're the two kids of Adam and Eve. They both bring an offering to God. Cain and his offering is rejected because he gave some of what's left. Abel is accepted because he gave the best of the first. Cain still has a chance. God says, hey, listen, you can fix all this. Cain doesn't respond to God's instruction, to this corrective word from God. He continues to get angry and angry and angry and angry. And so he kills his brother, and then he lies about it. And what God does as judgment is he sends him away. He says, you're going to be a restless wanderer on the face of the earth. And that's where we're going to pick up. I'm going to read a lot of names. I apologize. They're just, they're not good names. So we'll just muddle through them together. Cain lay with his wife. She became pregnant, gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad was the father of Mahu, Jael, and Mahujael was a father of Methushael, and Methushael was a father of Lamech. Lamech married two women, one named Adah and the other named Zillah. Adah gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise, raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who played the harp and the flute. Zillah also had a son, Tubal Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubal Cain's sister was Nama. Lamech said to his wife, Adonzel, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech seventy seven times. We're going to stop here. We'll look at Cain's family tree. Not very glorious there. Yes, he married his sister. There were no other options at that point. According to Genesis 5 4, Adam and Eve had many sons and daughters, and they married each other. So. That's that. He married his sister. That's a question people often have, who was Cain's wife. You see his continued rebellion. God says to him, you're going to be a restless wanderer. You're going to be a nomad. And what does he do? He builds a city. The opposite of being a restless wanderer, he just says no. And he builds a city. He names it after his son. You see this persistent wickedness, this persistent rebellion in Cain. And it culminates in that last generation of his, that we, or the second to last generation that we read about, Lamech. Uh, he's the epitome of of wickedness and evil in Cain's family tree. He introduces polygamy to the world. He marries two women, that goes totally against uh, God's under the understanding of marriage that we read in Genesis two. For this reason, a man uh, will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, two will become one flesh. Polygamy doesn't fit in that understanding. He introduced it. You may say, well, I know David had. Multiple wives. Many men in the Old Testament had multiple wives, and God doesn't seem to come down very hard on them. That's a true statement. He does not. I don't know why. What we know from Genesis two, the standard is one man, one woman. And if you read through the Old Testament, once they start adding wives, they start adding trouble big time. It always leads. Read, always leads to problems. So for, I don't know why God does not is not stricter with them on that, but it never works out well for anybody involved um, once they begin to marry multiple women. You see also Lamech's the first guy we ever see brag about his sin. He calls his wives together and it's called the the, the poem of the sword where he just says, hey, here's the, or the song of the sword. Here, let me tell you what I've done. Somebody injured me and so what I did was I killed him. It's not proportional at all. And God said he was going to avenge Cain seven times if you remember that when God sent Cain out, Cain got scared. He said, somebody's going to kill me. Remember, they're all brothers and sisters at this point. And so he killed his brother Abel, and he scared one of his other siblings is going to take revenge on him by killing him. And what God says is, I'll put a mark on you. We don't know what that was, something visible. And if anybody kills you, I will avenge you seven times. God is saying that. And so this, protect, this, this idea of seven times vengeance uh, for Cain, it, it's mercy in the midst of judgment. For Cain. It's saying, I'm going to protect you even as I send you out. Lamech doesn't understand it at all. He sees it as some type of badge of honor and says, if Cain is seven times, and for me it's 77, and God doesn't have to avenge me, I'll avenge myself. It's this arrogant, boastful, wicked heart that's exposed in this song of the sword. So that's Cain's family tree. Now verse 25, we'll look at Seth's family tree. Adam lay with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son, and named him Seth saying God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him Seth also had a son and named him Enosh at that time men be- began to call on the name of the Lord this is the written account of Adam's line when God created man he created him in the likeness of he created them in the likeness of God he created them male and female and blessed them and when they were created he called them man that word man is, is Adam When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived 930 years, and then he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he became the father of Enosh. After he became the father of Enosh, Seth lived 807 years, had other sons and daughters. Altogether, he lived 912 years, and then he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he became the father of Kenan. After he became the father of Kenan, Enosh lived 815 years, had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enosh lived 905 years, and then he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he became the father of Mahalel. And after he became the father of Mahalel, Kenan lived 840 years, had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Kenan lived 910 years, and then he died. When Mahalel had lived 65 years, he became the father of Jared. And after he became the father of Jared, Mahalel lived 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Mahalel lived 895 years, and then he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he became the father of Enoch. After he became the father of Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Jared lived 962 years, and then he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. And after he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch lived. Enoch walked with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and then he was no more because God took him away. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he became the father of Lamech. And after he became the father of Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Methuselah lived 969 years, and then he died. So Methuselah's the oldest guy. In the Bible, we'll stop there. Lamech's son is Noah, so we'll look at that next week. A couple of things before we jump in to see what's actually going on here. One, are those numbers for real? Ten times longer than anybody we know expects to live. Do people really live to be 912 and 895 and all of those things? Um, I'm going to give you a long answer to this question. I start, this to me is not the most difficult thing. To believe in the Bible, we've talked about that. We've got talking snakes. We've got guys living in the belly of a whale for three days. We've got axe heads that float. You've got a sea parting when somebody steps in it. There's all kinds of things that are difficult to believe. This, to me, is not the hardest one. Uh, when I read anything in the Bible and it kind of makes me go cross-eyed a little bit, what I think about is God becoming a man living, dying for my sins, being resurrected on the third day, and not just being resurrected on the third day, but actually calling it beforehand. Hey, I'm going to die, and this is how I'm going to die, and then I'm going to come back. And if I believe that, then the rest of it's not that hard for me. If I can believe that, that most significant miracle in the the history of the world, I'm basing my life on that. It's not very hard for me to say, yeah, somebody lived 930 years. And... This would be my encouragement to you. If, this is, if that's difficult for you, life, death, resurrection of Jesus, that's the most significant issue facing any of us as men and women. That's the question that all of history pivots on, and it's a question that your personal life will pivot on as well for all eternity. If you wrestle with that, I would encourage you, six weeks of Lent, it's a great time to kind of dig in and say, you know what, I want to finally answer this question for myself. I'm going to take some time. And I'm going to answer it. I'm, I'm going to watch a little less TV and spend a little bit more time on this. Here's a couple of things that you can do. There's this book. It's called The Case for Christ. It's by a guy named Lee Strobel. He was a um, journalist, I think, for the Chicago Sun-Times, was not a believer and kind of went on this little investigative search. and He winds up being a Christian. Everything is not that nice and neat, but when it is, you get a book out of the deal. So that's him. You can read that. That video link is about It's a 70-minute Video of the content of that book, if you don 't want to read, you can watch it it's just it, it'll maybe get you thinking the resurrection is one of the best attested miracles uh, in history there's there's some strong evidence for it, and this book will help you begin to unpack some of that, and you don 't necessarily have to believe in the Bible in order to grab onto the evidence that 's kind of the point of the book is if you for if you don 't have to take matthew mark luke and john's word for it. There's some other things that help support uh, the idea that Jesus was raised from the dead. And that book can give you some of that information. Personally, I would encourage you a couple of things. If you can figure out why it's difficult for you, it's always helpful. If you can say, this is the reason why it's difficult for me. I just don't buy it intellectually. I don't get, people don't come back from the dead. You're right, people do not come back from the dead. So how come Jesus said he would and how come there's 2 billion people who said he did? So what happened there? You may have, your difficulty may not be intellectual. It may be experiential. I've I've tried. I've never really felt God. I don't get that. It may be something more personal. Well, if that's everything you're saying is true, I've got loved ones who have not followed Jesus. So does that make them? That makes them damned. That puts them in hell. I'm not. I I would just rather not deal with that at all. I don't know what the issue may be for you, but I would encourage you to name it if you're willing. Tell somebody. This is why this is hard for me. And then the, the boldest thing you could do is just say to the Lord, to God, if you're real, if that's for your prayer, God, maybe you believe in God, I don't know where you are. God, if you're real, this is tough for me. I get that it's important. If it's true, I can see how it can be life-changing. I just don't see it for me. And so if this thing is real, I need you to convince me in a way that I'm going to understand I need you to convince me in a way that makes sense to me. And I'd like you to do it over the next six weeks. You're not giving God a deadline. You're just saying to him, if this is as big a deal as everybody says it is, I need to know. And so you ask him to begin to show you. And if your heart is willing to say yes, if it's true, I'm I'll, I'm in. If you're, If you can approach it with that posture, and you can approach him with that posture, I think he'll show you in a way that you that you'll get, that you'll understand. The choice will still be yours, of course. But he can do some things to address some of those issues that you may have. So, back to Genesis. Did Adam really live to be 930 years old? I'll say sure. It's not a deal-breaker for me one way or the other. There's no reason that I read to to take those numbers as anything other than literal. They had to have a whole lot of kids because they had to populate the earth, so I'm okay with saying they lived to be 930 years and that... and. Uh, Some guys have kind of come up with some plausible explanations that may uh, explain this. We don't know if they're true or not. We'll look at the flood. After the flood, the ages of people drop really fast and uh, significantly. It doesn't take long before people are living the the, the age that we think people should live. And so what people postulate is there was something atmospherically different before the flood and after the flood. When you read about creation in Genesis 1, it talks about this, this canopy of water, this water that's above the sky, and somehow there was, it created this barrier that kept the radiation from the sun from hitting folks, and so it was ideal conditions for us to live, and we didn't have the, the negative effects of radiation in our environment. There's also this idea that when God cursed, um, or, or after the fall when sin enters creation, it took some time for sin to corrupt um, DNA to the point that we're more susceptible to sickness and disease. So you kind of have this the removal of this protective barrier and then the progressive nature of sin, which we know to be true. So both of those things kind of playing hand in hand ultimately lead to lower lifespans. And at the beginning, the effects just weren't quite as great. But again, you don't that's nothing that's not going to make or break whether you're going to spend forever with Jesus, whether or not you believe Adam actually lived to be nine hundred and thirty years. But I don't know that there's a reason not to believe it. Second question is, well, can I just add up the numbers and find out how old the Earth is? Is this is this everybody? And I would say for me, again, doesn't matter to me one way or the other. I would say probably not. Um, genealogies in the Bible they're called open oftentimes, which means they just they pick the people who they want and put them in the genealogy. You see this in Matthew when he says these are Jesus' ancestors. The word "son of" can also mean descendant of and he says there's 14 generations from here to here and 14 from here to here and 14 from here to here, and there's not. Like we can go through and count in the Old Testament and say, no, there's not, there's more. He just left some people out, not because he was stupid, not because he was a bad record keeper, not because he was lying, but because he really liked the number 14, because 14 is 2 times 7, and 7 is a number of completeness, so it wraps everything up nice and pretty. And we get the same thing here in these genealogies. As we read, you'll see the seventh person is really important and then they end at 10, which is a really important number as well. So there easily could have been some other people in there that would extend the time between creation and the flood. But again, that's not a massive issue for many of us. But if it is for you, that's a possible explanation. I would like us to put a pen in that and try to look at what's actually going on here theologically. It's not a, The point of Genesis is not chronology, it's theology. We want to know what is trying to be communicated. So here are the things for us. Seth was created in the image of God. Easy to miss that. Incredibly important. If you stop at Genesis 4, it looks like the serpent won. Adam and Eve have two kids, Cain and Abel. Abel gets killed. Cain is disqualified because he kills him and is sent away. So what happens to the promise of God from Genesis 3, where he says, your offspring will will stomp his head? What happens to the promises to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 after the fall? if Abel's dead and Cain's disqualified. It looks like God's done. There's nobody else. There's no righteous line for him. There's no, there's no good side of the family because um, one side has been dead, one side's been killed, and the other side has been um, cut off. Seth's birth says, hey, God's still at work. That's why when you read chapter 5, it sounds like it's going all the way back to chapter 1. Hey, remember, Moses who wrote Genesis is saying, hey, y'all remember, That God created man in his image, in his likeness, and he named him Adam. And then Adam had a son, Seth, who was in his image, in his likeness. You remember third grade math, the associative property? You remember that? Here it is, because you don't remember third grade math. If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. Got it? What? What? There you go. So if, if Adam was created in the image of God, Seth is created in the image of Adam, that means Seth is also created in the image of God. That is huge for us, huge for us. It means the serpent didn't win. It means God's promises are still um, alive and, and applicable to us today. If you read Jesus' genealogy in Luke 3, it, it looks just like Seth. The people, those names that we just read, Methuselah and all those people, that's who Jesus, that's the line that he comes through, which is a huge point for us. So Seth is created in the image of God, which means you are created in the image of God. Now Seth is also fallen. They all die, which is just to say he's created in the image of God and he's part of a fallen family tree. Enoch is the exception. He's this guy who, for whatever reason, doesn't die. The Bible says he walks with God. He lives in close communion with God. You can understand that as saying he got along with God. And so what it looks like is he got along so well with God, and God got along so well with him, he just said, come on up. You don't have to die. Same thing happens to Elijah in 2 Kings 2.10. Only two people in the Bible who don't die. Even Jesus does. But those two guys, for whatever reason, they get to cheat death just to show us death isn't the final authority. Death doesn't have the final say. There's still hope. That's what Enoch says to us. We see Enosh. He's the Seth's son. He's the pioneer of worship. It says, In his time, men and women began to call on the name of the Lord. They already knew God's name. Adam and Eve did. They already offered sacrifices. We know that from Cain and Abel. But with Enosh, they began to call in the name of the Lord in a new way. Call or invoke the name of God. Prayer. Call, proclaim the good deeds that God has done. Worship. Those things come together together in Enosh's life. So when we look at Cain, or when we look at Lamech, his three kids, or his four kids, the three guys, all contribute significantly to culture. Animal breeding, that's them. Music making, that's them. Metal working, that's them. Those are significant cultural achievements. They also were created in the image of God. Even though they we're as wicked as the day is long, they were all created in the image of God. And they, they fill, they subdue they, that creation mandate that we talked about a few weeks ago. They're still fulfilling. They're technically proficient, morally deficient. But then we look over at Seth's family line and Enosh, his kid. In the in his time men began to call in the name of the Lord. So he pioneers worship. They're pioneering these other things which are good in terms of culture, no moral component. Enosh pioneers worship. And so what the author I think wants us to see is this contrast between these two generations. If you can show that or between these two branches of the family tree. Let's see the next one, please. There's, so if you look, Lamech, Enoch are both seventh in line from Adam. We said seven's a big number if you're a Hebrew. It's a number of completeness. So what they want us to see, I believe, what Moses is saying, if you look at Cain and you follow his family tree down, Lamech, the seventh, this number of completeness, there's been this sowing and reaping in their generations, in their family tree of wickedness. And Lamech is the epitome of wickedness. He introduces polygamy, blows up marriage, brags about his sin, kills somebody for injuring him. He's this epitome, the epitome of rebellion and wickedness. Enoch on the other side of the family, seventh in line from Adam as well, and the coming from Seth, this righteous one, this one who take who, the one through whom these promises are coming to. This one who the Bible makes a point to say, remember, he's been created in the image of God. He is so righteous, he doesn't even have to die. The effects of the fall on him seem to be avoided completely. You see the contrast between those two. I think for us, the thing that we need to pull away um, as we uh, look maybe a little more specifically at our own situation is this is reality for us. There's a... There's a process. We're all part of a family tree. None of us is Adam. None of us are at the top. We've got people above us, and for most of us, we've got people below us, whether those are biological children or people who we influence. And what I want us to look at is what does it look like to be positioned in a family tree. So a couple of terms for you to think about. I'm going to use shorthand, but I want you in your mind to hear what I'm saying. I'm going to talk about family. I don't just mean biological kin. I mean people who have influence in your life. Jesus says in Matthew 12, my mother and my brother and my sisters are those who do the will of God. He expands the definition of family beyond blood. So I'm going to say family just for the sake of being brief, but what I want you to hear is everyone, I'm going to say above you, whether that's in age or position, who's influenced your life. It's going to be your parents For those of you who knew your grandparents, it's going to be them most likely. Coaches, teachers, it may be mentors you had, people who you would say I've given to you. So when I say family, that's what I want you to hear. And when I say inheritance, I don't just want you thinking about the color of your hair or your eyes or your height. I want you thinking beyond the things that have come to you genetically to everything that you have received. It's not nature or nurture, it's both. Everything that you would say You've been given. So when I say your inheritance from your family, that's what I want you thinking about. Family, everyone who influenced me, and everything that I've received. And one of the things for us to recognize is the stuff that we've received, it's a mixed bag. It's not all good and it's not all bad. None of you are from this line of Cain where dad is your, your dad is Lamech and he's just wicked all the way through. Everybody, Christian or not, is created in the image of God. I don't know any parent who sets out to say, hey, here's how I'm going to screw up my kid, and they have the list. That's not how it works. There's good that's given to us, but there's also this recognition that we're all fallen. We're part of this fallen family tree, just like Seth. We're creating the image of God, but we're all fallen, and so there's some bad stuff that comes to us as well. So when you think about your inheritance, what you've received, recognize it's a mixed bag, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to identify what each component is. I want you to identify the good things that you've been given. Parents, grandparents, coaches, mentors, teachers, whoever. Identify them. Name them. I've got a strong work ethic because I saw it in my dad. My parents, they showed me what it looked like to have a healthy, strong marriage. I learned to, to give grace, to to be, uh, to give space to people who were different from me. Whatever those things are, whatever you could name as a good thing, I want you to name it. And this is why, two things. One is to thank God for it. We talk about the grace of God, and that's a nebulous, ambiguous concept. This is very specific. This is what the grace of God looks like for you. If you grew up in a, and you were influenced in a way that's positive, that's the grace of God tangibly presented to you, tangibly given to you. Not everybody had that. And then the second thing I'd encourage you to do is to thank the person who gave it to you. Mother's Day is coming up in a couple of months. Father's Day the month after that. Put that in the Hallmark card. Dad, thank. I saw this in you. I, I was thinking about you, and I just I, I realize now as an adult that this was something that you gave to me, and I appreciate it. That's a big deal. That would mean a lot to a parent for you to do that. So acknowledge it so you can thank God and thank them. Now, the things that are not good, I want you to acknowledge those things as well. This is not blame your parent day. It's not, I can, everything I do wrong is because of my, something my family did. Ezekiel 18, you can read that. Very clearly says, everybody's responsible for their own action. There's this proverb, God says, that's going through Ezekiel. There's this proverb that's going around that says, the kids are punished for their parents' sin. Don't say it anymore. That's what God says through Ezekiel. You can't say that anymore. If there's a wicked man and he has a righteous son, the wicked man's going to die and the righteous son's going to prosper. And if the righteous son has a wicked son, then that righteous one is going to prosper and the wicked one's going to die. It's the soul who sins, that's who's going to die. God, t- take, We're each responsible for our own heart. We're each responsible for our own choices. That's why Proverbs says, guard your heart. You're responsible for it. It's yours. But there is this recognition that none of us are blank slates. We're all given something. Some of it's good and some of it's not. And so if I can acknowledge the things that are not good, then maybe it helps me to make sure I don't pass those things on. So some of us were raised in a home where people blew up at each other. That was acceptable. If you didn't get your way, you just started yelling and screaming. And so it's made you a yeller and a screamer. That's something that you inherited. Nature, nurture, doesn't matter. It's something that you saw. It's what you were... Raised in. For some of you, your grandparents were children of the Depression. And they pass that on to your parents who pass that on to you. And so when you open the pantry, you know, there's this thing in you that says, is there actually going to be food there? Completely irrational for where we live, but that's real in you. This fear of, 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 of wanting, this fear of poverty, of lack, of scarcity. Something that's come down to you through your family because of the circumstances your grandparents maybe lived in. Some of you, its again, it's, it's, it wasn't your biological family. It was someone else who influenced you in a negative way. Can you name what those things are and then say, I don't, I'm done. It stops with me. When it comes to the bad stuff, I'm going to be a cul-de-sac. It's going to end with me. The good stuff, I'm going to be a through road. I'm going to pass it on. But when it comes to the bad stuff, it stops with me. And the say to the Lord, Hey, this isn't, you know I struggle with this. I was raised in a house where this is what we did, and I recognize it is not good, and I need help because I don't want my kids doing this. I don't want to do it anymore, and I don't want them to do it anymore. I don't want my employees to be subjected to this anymore. I want it to stop with me. I don't want the people, who I, the kids who I coach in soccer, I don't want them to be subjected to this. This is not good, and we need it to stop. So look up my family tree. Again, you know how I'm saying that. What are the good things that have come to me? Acknowledge, thank. What are the bad things that are coming to me? Acknowledge and kind of cut those things off. Say, we're done. And that's all prayerful, uh, the way that you handle that. Then I want you to look down or forward, however you want to see that. Who's coming after you? What's the next generation? And what are you passing on to them? Because you're passing on something. Many of you have filled out wills. Most of you, when you made your will, probably didn't say, just come by the house and take what you want. Most of us, if you've done a will, you said specifically, this person gets this thing. You're very intentional and thoughtful in that. Be the same way when it comes to this spiritual inheritance. This, God, I recognize this is something good that you've given to me. I don't take credit for it. I just recognize that's what your grace looks like to me. And I want to make a point. That I give this to my children, I want to make a point that I give this to the people in my small group. I want to make a point that I give this to the people on this staff or whoever it is, the people in your company, your neighbors, whoever you have influence on. I, I recognize this is part of your image in me looks like this. This is part of the good of the grace that you've given to me, and I want to be a through road with that. I want to make sure I'm passing that on to somebody else. Name those things and be intentional, just like you would giving away your favorite possessions, to make sure it gets to the person who you want it to get to, do so with your with the grace that God has given you as well. And then the same thing on the, it's a, it's a mixed bag. You're going to give away good stuff and you're going to give away bad stuff. Some of you maybe have already started a counseling fund for your kids. So when they get to that age, they, it's already sitting there waiting on them. We're all... Again, none of us set out and say, I want to, I'm going to mess my kids up, and here's how I'm going to do it. But we all wind up because we're fallen, and our sin spills onto them. And our sin spills onto the people in our company, and our sin spills onto our neighbors. That's just the way it works. We're not perfect. We're all fallen, and so we've got to recognize that. And so I need to recognize there's some things in me that are not good that are going to get passed on to everybody I influence if I'm not intentional. My mom's family is sarcastic. I'm sarcastic, and now I see it in my kids, and it's not cute at all. And so I've got to say I, that I don't want that. So I've got to highlight that in me and say that is part of, that's me, and that's not good, and I don't want that going to my children. I want them to learn a different way of making a joke or whatever it is than, through, than by being sarcastic. That's part of it for you, too, is acknowledging, hey, these are the areas where I wrestle, this is where I struggle, and I don't want this going on to the next generation. When it comes to the bad stuff, I'm going to be a cul-de-sac. It's going to end with me, so I've got to intentionally name and own what those things are. Again, it's not so I can blame somebody else for the problems I have, and it's not so they can then blame me. They're 100% responsible for their choices. I just might as well set them up for success instead of failure. We say all the time, or you hear all the time, if I could be half the man, what if you could be twice the man or twice the woman? That's what Elisha says to Elijah. Remember, Elijah's the one who's translated into heaven. One of two people in the universe, for that to ever happen for, doesn't die. And Elisha doesn't say, well, if I could just be half the man, twice, what does that even look like? Twice the man, if you read their stories, Elijah performed eight miracles, Elisha performed 16. It's just a little picture there. Some of us have been given five talents, some two, some one. We've all been given something. And the question is, what are we doing with that? Are you multiplying that out into the next generation? Again, however you picture the next generation, whatever that looks like for you, are you doing that intentionally? Are you burying the good things that you've been given? Are you multiplying the bad things that you've been given? Hopefully the answer to both of those questions is no. Let me close with this. I'm going to give you four kings real quick. You don't need to try to grab onto too many of the details. I just want you to hear the rhythm of this. In the second year of Pekah, son of Romalia, king of Israel, so the way they're dating these kings is Israel and Judah are a split kingdom. So there's two kingdoms. There's a kingdom, a king of Israel, and there's a king of Judah. And the way they date them is by the other. So the king of Judah is dated by the king of Israel, if that makes any sense. If it doesn't, just you lost that minute, so I'm sorry. So, in the second year of Pekah, son of Ramalia, king of Israel, Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king. He reigned for 16 years. His mother was Jerusalem, daughter of Zadok. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Uzziah had done. Uzziah's a good king. Jotham's a good king. The high places, however, were not removed. People continued to offer sacrifices and burn incense there. Verse, uh, chapter 16. In the seventeenth year of Pekah, son of Romalia, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was twenty when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem sixteen years, unlike David, his father. And David would have been his great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. Unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. Walked in the ways of the king of Israel, sacrificed his son in the fire, following the detestable ways of the nations the Lord had driven out, before the Israelites offered sacrifices, burned incense at the high places on the hilltops and under every spreading tree. So Uzziah, good king, has, has Jotham, good king, whose son Ahaz is a bad king. Over to chapter 18, the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 when he became king. He reigned for 29 years. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done, removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, cut down the Asherah poles, broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made. For up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to to it. He trusted the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before or after. He held fast to the Lord and did not cease to follow him. He kept the commands the Lord had given Moses, and the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. Now, verse chapter 21, Manasseh was 12 when he became king, reigned for 55 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt everything his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He erected altars to Baal, made an Asherah pole, as as Ahab, king of Israel, had done, bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them, built altars in the temple of the Lord, of which God had said in Jerusalem, I will put my name in both courts of the temple of the Lord. He built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his own son in the fire, practiced sorcery and divination, consulted mediums and spirits. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. So, recap. Jotham, good king, has Ahaz, bad king, has Hezekiah, one of the greatest kings, has Manasseh, one of the worst kings. It makes you say, as a parent possibly, do I even matter? Does it matter? In a sense, the answer is no, it doesn't matter at all because everybody makes their own choices. What it says to me is, Your inheritance does not determine your destiny. Your choices do. Your response to God determines your destiny, not your inheritance. You can live beyond it if it's negative. And if it's positive, you can squander it. You can't rest upon it. The question is always, what are you doing with what you've been given? If you've been given lead weight that's that's around your neck, holding you back, dragging you down. Well, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to get rid of it? Are you going to gripe? Are you going to moan? Are you going to complain? Are you going to pass it on to the others who you're influencing? If you've been given something incredible, five talents, well, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to multiply it to the next generation? Are you going to squander it? you Are going to hoard it? What are you going to do? What this shows me, this reign, just of four kings, is our influence on others is always limited. There's an effect there, but it's a limited effect because everyone makes their own choices. What we want to do is set up the people coming after us for success, not not make things more difficult than they need to be. But if you were someone who was not positioned well for success, if you were honest, you would say, what's in the bad column is a whole lot more than what's in the good column, then what you need to hear is, that's okay. That doesn't have to define you at all. Hezekiah was one of the greatest kings ever, and his dad was not second thing I would say, it's easy to influence things. It's more effective to influence people. Everything that Hezekiah did, his wicked son then undid. Hezekiah tore down all these idols, tore down all of these um, altars. And what did Manasseh do when he, he just built them all right back. Easy to influence things, but that work is temporary. It can all be undone. We see that every four years or every eight years. Republicans come in and do this, and what do the Democrats do? And they, they just plow it all down. And what happens when the Republicans come in? They build it all back up. It's, just the way, it's the way things work. If all you're doing is influencing things, that work is temporary. If you can influence people, there's that lasts. It's much more difficult, and it's much more tenuous. It's a lot easier to point to this thing and say, hey, look what I built. It's a lot harder to look at kids or to look at people in your small group. Or to look at employees and say, I, I kind of helped shape them a little bit. Sometimes I want to claim them. Sometimes I don't. It's a lot harder to do that with people. But that's what lasts, if you can grab on to that. So as we close, I just want you thinking about those several things. Look up your family tree. What's there? What's been given to you? What are you doing about it? Then look out. Look down your family tree. What are you giving away? Are you, are you happy with it? is it good if you had to write it out just like you wrote out your will if you had to write out what you were passing on would you be like yes this is i'm 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 good with this i'm happy and if you're not if you are wonderful if you're not what are you going to do about it don't feel heavy or guilty our influence on everyone is limited but recognize that your influence is real and so use it to help set others up for success let's pray God, most of the time we thank you for putting us in family. Sometimes we wish you wouldn't. But we're all influenced by others and we influence others. And that's a reality. For some of us, we don't recognize the influence that we have on other people. You've given us five talents, but we don't think, we we just don't recognize it. So, a couple of things, God. I pray for folks who, if they were honest, would say, "I I, I drew a bad hand. God, I pray today you would set them free from that. And things that have weighed them down, God, that they would walk out of here delivered from things that they've seen in their family or that have been put upon them by people in positions of influence. God, people who, if they were honest, would say, I, I drew a great hand. Charmed life. Blessed life. God, I pray there would be acknowledgement of that. Thanks. Thanks to you and to those who were channels of your grace. God, I pray for all of us. We all have somebody who we're influencing now. And God, I pray that the things that we're passing on to them are things that help move them forward and don't hold them back. So show us, God, if there's the the junk in us. Lord, I pray that you would show us that and we would be a cul-de-sac when it comes to that. We'd say no more. God, by your grace, I don't want to see this in the next generation. And God, the good things that you've given to us, again, by your grace, we want to be a through street. We want to see those things multiplied out in the lives of those who look to us. So come in these next couple of minutes and do this work for all of us. I pray for people whose, whose parents are, are dead and they're thinking about this and it's just starting up some not good things. And I pray you'd show them how to deal with that, how to deal with maybe some stuff that's come into their life and they can't even express back to their parents either thanks or um, just the, the negative things that are there as well. So we're just asking you to come and be merciful to us in these few minutes. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to have ministry teams up in the corners. We'll pray with you about anything that you got going on, But if any of this family tree stuff uh, stirred your heart. We'd love to pray with you about that. Some of you might have your kids with you or you might want to grab them. If you, and we'll pray with you as a family like us to do that as well. So y'all can stand, Bo will dismiss us when this song is done, and you guys can respond however you want.